you would this morning, let's go back to Galatians chapter 3. And we should, Lord willing, finish out chapter 3 today. Galatians chapter 3. We're definitely talking about freedom this morning. There's no doubt about that. I absolutely love this text. I love the meaning behind the text. And, and I love the way that God's Word just flows so well together. It's one of the big reasons that I believe so strongly in preaching through books of the Bible. But in the book of Galatians so far, we've seen the theme of our liberty in Christ with the theme verse being chapter 5 and verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondages. And I say every time by review, Paul is passionately writing to these Galatian believers to confront them because they have allowed false teachers to come into the church, these Judaizers, uh, these supposed Jewish converts to Christianity. But what they've done is they've said, yes, Jesus is the only way to heaven. Uh, you have to be a Christian, all these things. But they said before you become a Christian, you have to become a Jew. You have to fulfill all the Mosaic law. If you're a Gentile convert, the males have to be circumcised or you cannot even be saved. And as I've said every week, the very definition of a cult is a group of people that tell you, yes, that you know Jesus may be the only way to heaven, but we're the only way to Jesus. Our group, our priesthood, our church is the only way to Jesus and therefore the only way to heaven. As we've mentioned over the past few weeks, chapter 3, it reads kind of like a courtroom scene, just a, a symbolic thing, of course, but it would seem that the gospel of grace and justification by faith are all on trial, and Paul is acting as their defense lawyer, and he begins to call witnesses to the stand one at a time. He calls the witness, uh, the witness of the Spirit and he asked the Galatians how they were saved, by the works of the law or by the Spirit. Well, of course, it was by the Spirit of God, by grace through faith. And then he calls the witness of the law. The Judaizers want to say that the law is a means of salvation by fulfilling the law. And so Paul calls the law to the stand and does some cross-examination, shows that the law has never saved anybody. And then the past couple of weeks, we looked at the witness of the Abrahamic covenant, and we have seen that salvation has always been by the promise of God. It's always been by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament saints had faith to the Messiah that would come, and we're saved by faith looking back to the Messiah that's already come and died on the cross for our sin. And so he destroys that argument that salvation comes by the law. But as I've said every week, Paul, every time he says something, he knows what the Judaizers counter argument is going to be. And so we're dealing with another counter argument today. And that is, okay, if salvation doesn't come through the law and it's never come through the law, then what's the point of the law? Why did God give us the law? And so Paul deals with that very thing in this text that we're going to look at today. In fact, before we even read our text, I want to show you how clear this is uh, about, the, about Paul dealing with their counter-argument. Look in verse 19 of chapter 3. Paul asked them a rhetorical question. Wherefore then serveth the law? He said, okay, what is the point of the law? He's getting ahead of them and he's, he's asking the question they're about to ask. But it raises another question. Look at verse 21. 
Is the law then against the promises of God? So the two arguments are, what's the point of the law? What point does it serve? And is the law uh, contradicting the promises of God? And, and so we're going to deal with this. And so with that in mind, let's read our text this morning. Galatians 3, we'll begin in verse 19 and go to the end of the chapter here, 10 verses. Verse 19, wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. That's talking about Christ. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you has been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you so much for your word. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to so freely worship you and preach your word and sing praises to you, God. Let us never take that for granted. Lord, uh, we, we're so thankful for uh, those that laid down their life to, to give us these freedoms. And we're thankful that, uh, God, they stood for the freedom that you give and you grant us, Lord. And I pray for our countries. We're just headed in a bad way. Lord, we need revival so badly. And I pray that you give us mercy and that uh, the gospel once again uh, see great fruit in this land. I pray you'd fill me your Holy Spirit into me as sin and self. Make preaching powerful and simple. And I pray that, uh, God, wherever we are this morning, wherever our hearts are, that you would show us where we are and take us where we need to be, whether it be salvation, whether it be submission in a certain area of our life, or whether we just need to trust you, Lord, and that you'd give us peace in our trials. And we give these things to you. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. So we're going to deal with the very two questions that Paul dealt with. And in doing so, if you were to give the message a title, it would be the purpose of the law. Paul has spent the whole text making the argument and the point that salvation has never been by the law. And so the natural question is, well, okay, what point does the law serve? So let's look at that. Um, now, the first thing I want to look at this morning, i got three things that I really want to pay attention to. But the first purpose of the law is to condemn us, is to condemn all of humanity, that every mouth may be silenced and that the whole world would become guilty before God. That very statement is found in Romans chapter 1. But look at verse 19 again. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. 
But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. It says that the law cannot give life. And the opposite of life is death. It can't give life, but it sure points out death. And, and so that is the main purpose of the law. Uh, as I mentioned in verse 19, Paul is dealing with what point does the law serve. And the first answer he gives, the very first phrase, he answers his own question, because of transgressions. Now this is a very interesting word here. This is legal language. A transgression is a legal offense. It literally means to break the law or to go beyond. And that makes sense because even the word sin is a legal term. We find in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4 that sin is a transgression of the law, what we just read. And so our sin is a legal offense against God. It is when we break the law of God and disobey His holy commands and His holy word. And so he said the law came in because of transgression. Now this is interesting to me because what this means is that transgressions were around before the law came around. It already existed. It's not like sin wasn't around before the giving of the law. What the law did, it didn't invent sin, it just clarified it. It just pointed it out. And so if it already existed, then how would we know that it existed? And so uh, this raises these questions that we have to wrestle with. How could God condemn anyone prior to the giving of the law? And how can God condemn those today who have never even heard of the Old Testament law, the gospel, the Bible, or Jesus? How can He condemn anybody? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> this is, listen, this is very important stuff here. I mean, this is very good theological material here. The reason that God could condemn someone prior to the law and the reason that He can condemn somebody in the jungles of nowhere today that may have never even encountered uh, the written Word of God is because of what is known as natural law. Natural law. Now, the Lord was very specific about this concept in Romans chapter 1 and 2, but most specifically in chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. You don't have to turn here, but I want to read this to you. Listen to what it says here in Romans 2. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature, there's that word nature, natural law. When they do by nature the things contained within the law, these having not the law are law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. And the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. And so the natural law, uh, th this is what people will be judged by who don't have the word of God. Now the natural law, this is really important. Now the natural law was even recognized and understood by the ancient pagan philosophers. We're going to look at that in just a minute. That becomes important. 
This, this thing is so real that we, even though we may not have a label for it, we may not have thought it through, we all recognize it. It, it, it exists in every one of us because as we just saw in Romans chapter 2, not only is this law written in a book, but it's also written in our hearts, this moral law. And the natural law reveals itself in two ways, the conscience and what is known as judicial sentiment. Now, the conscience has to do mainly with how we treat other people. Uh, and, and for example, don't steal from your neighbor. We understand that, that our conscience tells us it's wrong to do that and it's right not to do that. But judicial sentiment has to do with how others treat us. Uh, in other words, being upset if somebody stole from us. And I absolutely love this little video clip. I saw this years ago, but probably one of the greatest and even, I would say, humorous examples of judicial sentiment. Uh, several years ago, uh, Dr. R.C. Spruill was on a Q&A answer session, and there was a guy in the audience that asked him this question. He said, Dr. Spruill, he said, my brother is an atheist. He does not believe in the concepts of sin and injustice. How can I convince him of sin and injustice? He had a three-word answer. Dr. Sproul said, steal his wallet. <laughs> steal his wallet. And, of course, everybody in the audience, they started laughing and clapping because the obvious point he was making is this. Everybody understands sin and injustice when it happens to us. Well, where did that come from? Where did that sense, that ingrained sense of right and wrong and justice and injustice, where did that come from? The animals don't have that. The animals aren't holding courts with uh, juries of their peers and judges of the same animal kingdom. That's not happening. Where does that come from? And uh, the famous atheist turned Christian writer C.S. Lewis really battled with this concept. Well, it comes from God. The existence of a universal moral law points us to a moral law giver. And if you want evidence for God, people are always wanting proof. I always point to two things. I mean, I, you could point to His revealed Word. We understand that, but the atheist is not going to buy that. But I tell you, you can, you can show them how illogical that they are. That uh, you can look outside and you can see uh, the creation and you can feel your heart beat and you can recognize that it takes over 30 million nerve endings in your eyeballs to allow you to see right now. And how all of this, you know, doesn't have a creator, but this dead piece of wood, we know that somebody built that. That's how illogical that is, and everybody knows it. You would have a better chance of taking a hammer and bashing your watch into a million pieces and throwing it into the dryer for a cycle and expecting it just to magically come back together, there's a greater chance of that happening than all of this just coming from nothing. You have to have more faith to be an atheist than to be a Christian. And another thing that we point to, we're talking about this morning, is the existence of that ingrained sense of moral law, that sense of right and wrong. And C.S. Lewis was an atheist. Of course, I'm talking about the famous... Uh, English professor at Oxford there. He was a very outspoken atheist. But he began to wrestle with this concept of moral law. And you can read about this in his book, Mere Christianity. I highly recommend that book. But the first five chapters of that book, he talks about how the existence of a universal moral law brought him from a place of atheism to a place 
of believing that there was a God somewhere in the universe and eventually it brought him to Christ. And in the first five chapters of that book, he basically tries to nail down four premises. And I, I just want to give you these four briefly. Number one, there is a universal moral law. We recognize that. In every culture, it's wrong to cheat on your spouse. It's wrong to commit adultery. It's wrong to lie. It's wrong to murder your brother. I mean, we understand these things. We know these things. Rape is wrong. We, we understand all these things. There is a universal moral law. Number two, if there is a universal moral law, there must be a moral law giver, i.e. God. Three, if there is a moral law giver, it must be something beyond the universe. Number four, therefore there is something beyond the universe. To me, this is the Achilles heel of the atheist, the humanist, and the relativist. They have no accounting for this ingrained sense of right or wrong. It, 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 they have no argument to defeat it. Now, if you were to talk to an atheist or a humanist or a relativist, they all pretty much believe the same thing. But if you ask them if rape is wrong, watch them shout yes with all the passion of a Baptist preacher. But you ask them why it's wrong and you watch them melt onto the ground they're standing on. They have no accounting for that. They can't appeal to any transcendent moral law because the moment they do that, they're saying there's a God. And they know it. That's why they try to avoid it with everything in them. Now, over the centuries, there have been many attempts to explain away this connection between a moral law and the moral lawgiver. For example, uh, I've, had, I've had atheists tell me when I ask them that question, why is it wrong? Where do, what standard are you using to come up with that? I've had some tell me, well, it's... You know, morality is, is decided by the society. The society comes together as a whole, and then we vote on our leaders and our laws, and so morality comes from society for the good of all people. But that, that is so easily defeated because the simple question, the reductio would be, well, what about Nazi Germany, where as a society... Uh, the Nazis d decided it was a good thing to exterminate Jews and gypsies and the mentally handicapped and those that didn't fit the Aryan dream. Was that wrong to do that? Well, you watch them just beads of sweat break out on their face. Because if their worldview is right, you can't say it's wrong because they were just doing what society said was good. And in fact, in the Nuremberg trials after the war was over, when the Nazi generals and the leadership, they had to stand trial for the horrible things they had done. Their attorney's only argument, the thing they really tried to push, was that there's no way they could be tried like this by the laws of these other nations because they were just living in accordance to their own laws. I'm so glad that the judges didn't buy into that nonsense. Uh, but that's the argument. Uh, or even, you know, slavery in America. How could you say that was morally wrong if society decided that it was good and right and honorable and decent? You couldn't do that. There's no moral way to fight against that if you buy into that argument. But if you have a moral law and a moral lawgiver, you can say it's wrong and here's why, because God said so. <laughs> that doesn't work in an atheist worldview. They can't say that. And so this natural law, we see it, we understand it, we recognize it. Even the atheists recognize it. Um, they always have to borrow from the Christian worldview to make sense of all this stuff. Um, 
I think about another example of how an attempt was made to separate this ingrained moral law from the lawgiver is the Hindu idea of karma. Now, karma is basically what what goes around comes around. If you do good, then good will come back to you. If you do bad, then bad will come back to you. And I was actually witnessing to a Hindu one time on an airplane. I was talking to her. And she was talking about karma. You know, she believed in karma and that good would come to you. But I said, but you don't believe there's a personal, actual God, the being God, do you? And she said, no. And I said, okay, if there is no God, then who's keeping score? She went cross-eyed. You see what they've done? They've, they can't get out of the fact there's an ingrained sense of good and, and right and wrong and good and evil. They can't get away from that, but they try to separate that from God as if somehow the universe, this impersonal thing, is keeping score. You see how wicked the heart of man is to try to come up with this stuff? And so... Very clearly, for those who have never seen or heard of the Mosaic Law, God will judge them by the moral law of their conscience, the natural law written in their heart, as well as their suppression of the truth. And here, I need to point this out. If you read Romans 2 and Galatians 3, some people may take that and say, well, see, they can be justified by their conscience. Well, theoretically, but the problem is nobody does. Everybody violates their conscience. Everybody. And so they're only going to be condemned. And even if somebody dies and they stand before God in judgment and God is going to cast them in the lake of fire, even if they say, I never even heard of Jesus Christ, He's going to look at them and say, you didn't want to. Because everybody comes into this world knowing that there is a God. Knowing it. Look at creation. Know there's a Creator. Know, know that we have a conscience, there's a moral lawgiver, and people are either going to take that knowledge and they're going to want more knowledge, they're going to seek after God, or they're going to suppress it, which is what humanity does. It suppresses the truth. The truth is, we're all in trouble with God. Romans 3, verses 10 through 12 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Verse 23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's talking about the perfect standard of God. So the diagnosis isn't good. The purpose of the law is to condemn humanity. That's the purpose of the law. But then number two Not only does the law condemn humanity, but the law also confirms the character of God. I cannot tell you how important this point is. Look at verse 21. It says, Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. Once again, Paul gets ahead of their argument of the Judaizers by asking that question, is the, is the promises of God contrary to the law of God? You see what they're trying to do, the Judaizers? They're going to try to pit the, the promises of God against the written law of God. They're bringing into question the very character of God. Now, <clears throat> if the law was just an end in and of itself, it would tell us what is right and what is wrong, 
but it wouldn't reveal why those things are right and wrong. This is what the Pharisees miss. There, I know some modern-day Pharisees, by the way. And the problem they have is they, they get the letter of the law, they understand it, they memorize it, uh, but they fail to see who it is pointing to. You see, the law reveals the righteous and holy character of God. And if you miss that, then you're just going to be a, a legalist Boy Scout that's just trying to check all these boxes, and you're totally missing who it's pointing to. Now, this is very important. I told you that even the ancient philosophers recognized the ingrained moral law, that natural law. But even they tried to separate that from God. And I found this really interesting. I'm actually studying this very thing in one of my classes this semester, and it worked out so well for this sermon. But uh, Socrates came up with what it, we call the Euthyphro Dilemma. And what this is, it's a, it's a supposed dilemma that says, and it asks this question. I want you to think about it. Don't answer out loud. Just think about it for a minute. Does God, or as he said, the gods, but we say God. Does God command something because it is good? Or is something good simply because God commands it? Think about that for a second. Now, the reason this is important is because is, if this dilemma is true then if it's true that things are good because God commands it, that makes God arbitrary. He could decree anything He wants to. He could say that rape is okay tomorrow if He wanted to. That makes God arbitrary. But on the other end, if, if things are good and therefore God commands it, what it means is there's some type of law in the universe that's above God, that God is somehow checking notes from something else higher than him, and he's just kind of reporting the news, and therefore he's not sovereign. So Socrates and the philosophers think, gotcha, but here's the problem. It's a false dilemma because God commands things because they are a reflection of his holy and perfect and unchanging nature. God commands us not to lie because, as I've said before, He's not a liar. He commands us not to steal because He's not a thief. And because He's immutable and because He's unchanging, it's never going to be okay to steal. He's never going to be a thief. It's wrong now. It was wrong thousands of years ago. It'll be wrong a million years from now because God's character is good and righteous and holy and unchanging. So... This dilemma that Socrates came up with, it just doesn't work. They, they, they always lose when they try to go against God. They always lose. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> um, the, once again, the purpose of the law, it not only condemns humanity, but it also confirms the holy and righteous character of God. The law gives a great contrast between us and God. The, the law reveals a grand canyon between us and God, which brings us to our final point. And I want to park it here for a little while and we'll be done. <clears throat> the law condemns humanity. It confirms the character of Christ. But thirdly and lastly, it compels us to Christ. Look, <clears throat> look at verse 24. It says, Wherefore... The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. Do you see that? That we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. 
For you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There's a lot of doctrine in these few verses here. I'm going to try to pull it out one at a time. But first of all, it says that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. Now, please don't think about a school teacher when you hear the word schoolmaster. In fact, this same word can be translated guardian. And um, uh, here is the, this is one reason it's so great to just study some of the uh, cultural background. Because you'll com- if you just look at this through 21st century Western eyes, you'll miss the whole point that Paul is making. Paul is giving these Galatians a, an example that they will clearly recognize and understand based on the customs of that day. But in this day, the Roman culture, what they would do, some of the wealthy families would assign an educated slave to oversee their children or guard their children, if you will. Now, this slave would pretty much be in their shadow all the time making sure that they were at peak performance in every area of their life, from education to athletics to table etiquette. The guardian was always there to drive that particular child to excellence. Now, it was not uncommon at all for the guardian to give the child a disciplinary slap or even a scourging and, uh, for underperforming. Now, we look at that and think, man, that's crazy. But you remember the Romans were... High on excellence and not so much on empathy. So this was not uncommon for that day at all. Now, just put yourself in the shoes of that child who had this guardian walking in their shadow 24-7. I mean, you get, you get pop for wrong posture. You get pop for table etiquette. I would just stay black and blue, amen? Uh, you know, you get, you get discipline for not learning your studies like you should or maybe not coming in first place. In an athletic event, can you imagine how burdensome it would be for somebody to follow you around 24-7 and making sure that you were doing everything exactly right? And I I know the men are probably thinking, yeah, it sounds like a wife, but it's not. Or some of the children probably thinking that sounds like mom or dad. But in all honesty, I mean, wouldn't that be horrible? What a horrible, burdensome existence, always looking over your shoulder, always afraid that you're going to do something wrong. But here's the thing, at the age of 14, these Roman children would have a coming-of-age ceremony, and during that ceremony, they were set free from the guardian. That would be an awesome thing, wouldn't it? This is the example that Paul is giving. He is comparing the law to the burdens of that guardian, and he is comparing Christ to the freedom from that guardian, from the freedom from that law that is exactly the point that he is making. Now, not only do we have the law of conscience gnawing at us, but then we have these hundreds of laws to spell out in black and white just how bad our report card really is. It's a burdensome, weighty thing the law of God is. And and I thought about it kind of like this. If you think about natural law and your conscience, uh, you know, it's kind of like if you've ever taken a test. And for me, I automatically think about a math test because I'm not that good at math. But have you ever taken a test, and as you're taking it, you're like, man, I don't know how I feel about this. 
kind of worried about it, but you know, maybe I did okay. And you try to talk it up like you did okay, but then you, the verdict comes and the teacher's handing out, we've all been there, I can see some of you sweating now, you're having flashbacks. <clears throat> but, and you get it back, and in red ink, a big fat F with a circle around it. And you just feel that bad. Why? Because it's undeniable how bad you did. <laughs> or have you ever, maybe you were dieting or exercising, trying to do better, and then all of a sudden you start slipping. Maybe you have a holiday, or maybe the church gets together to eat, or whatever the case may be, and you start slipping. You think, well, I didn't, I didn't do as good as I should. Maybe not as bad. But then you step up on the scale, and it says, liar, liar, pants on fire. You've got that number to tell you just how bad you've been doing. And it feels bad, doesn't it? Or, um, you know, maybe you've been spending money, maybe more so than you probably should, and, and then you get that credit card statement in the mail, and you think, man, I didn't know I spent that much. The numbers confirm the feeling. And it's a horrible feeling. And, and I'm sure that we've all been in situations like that, or, or maybe um, you're on the job, and you know, you're thinking maybe you're doing, you know, I'm not the best employee in the company, but I'm still doing a pretty good job. And then it comes time for the evaluation. <laughs> and you have to go in the office and sit in front of the supervisor and they got that clipboard and judgment day comes and they're going to tell you how you really did. Sometimes it feels bad, doesn't it? The law confirms the feeling. And so, yes, it's bad. It's worse than you ever could have thought. We're not right before God. We're lost before a holy God. And we've got all of these commands in black and white to show us how wicked and how guilty we really are. That's what the law is. It's a burdensome thing. It condemns humanity. It, it confirms uh, the character, the holy character of God. But it also compels us to Christ because it shows us our desperate need for a Savior. The law shows us what a slave to sin we really are, but it also shows us that Christ can make us free. Uh, the law reveals how dirty we are, but Christ can make us free. The law tallies up our sin debt before God, but Christ paid it all through His death on the cross. The law shows us uh, just how wicked we are, but Christ can make us righteous. Um, now, in verse 27 through 29, when it speaks of the Spirit, not water baptism, I just want to point that out as a matter of doctrine. This is not talking about water baptism. This is talking about the spirit baptism. That is the baptism that saves us. It is the baptism that takes place at the moment of salvation. It puts us into the body of Christ. You can find this in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13 as well as Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Freedom in Christ um, in verses... I'm going to read this again as we close here. Um, <clears throat> verse 26... It says, For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to uh, the promise. Now this, this particular passage has been greatly butchered in our day to try to say that, see, there's no gender. You know, trans is okay. There's no male, no female. Or, you know, women pastors are okay because there's no male or female. That, that's nonsense, folks. Listen, there's still Jews. There's still Gentiles. There's still men. There's still women. And 
they're still in the world, they're still slaves, and they're still free. Those, those categories don't go away. But what Paul is saying is that in Christ, we're all equal. Men are not above women. Uh, slave owners are not above their slaves. Uh, Jews are not above Gentiles. And in the direct context, what he's telling these Judaizers is, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Gentiles don't have to go through extra steps to be saved. <clears throat> and so that's the point he's making. We're all valuable and free in Jesus Christ. We're all the spiritual children of Abraham. And as I close, I just want to ask you, are you still under the burden of sin and guilt today? How are you squaring with your conscience? Do you know whether or not you're right with God? Or are you condemned by God as revealed by the law, both the law of your conscience and the law of God? Or are you free in Jesus Christ this morning? Because if not, you can be set free by the power of the gospel. It's the only thing that can forgive and remove your sin. It's the only thing that can pay your sin debt. It's the only thing that can make you right with God is faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only price sufficient for sin. And you can be set free if you just repent, turn from your dead works, your own self-reliance and your self-sufficiency and your sin, and just depend on Jesus Christ alone for salvation. That's it. Jesus plus nothing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can be free from the burden of sin and death. You can be free from the penalty of the law. You can be made right with God and walk out here forgiven, white as snow, in a right relationship with God, and knowing that you have a home in heaven today. And I, I would say this, too, for those that are saved. Maybe you're, not, maybe you're not feeling the forgiveness of God. You know, sometimes we really do have to discern between the Holy Ghost that convicts us and a false feeling of guilt that Satan attacks us with. Because you can have feelings of guilt that are not based on reality. And if you're basing it on anything in the past that you've given to God, get over it. Let God get you past your past. Because if you don't, you're going to be miserable. Weighed down with things that Christ already died for. And as I always say that if you continue to beat yourself up over things that Christ was already beaten for, you're saying that the cross isn't enough. You can't even enjoy your salvation like that. But you can trust Him that you're account is settled in heaven. Would you stand as she comes? <clears throat>